everyone. Welcome to this week's chapter by chapter recap where we are taking a look at Habakkuk through Zephaniah. Uh, so we're almost finishing up the Old Testament. If you don't know, if this is your first time here, my name is Corey and this is my husband, Matlock. Hey, Matlock. Hey. Are you excited to to kind of get through most of the minor prophets today? Yeah. Like finish I, I, them up? This will be good. No, I like the minor prophets, but yes, I it is it's always good to get keep moving forward. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is good, yeah. So then next week we'll just have Micah and then we jump into the New Testament um, uh, Malachi and then we jump into That's the right. New Testament. Yeah. Which is exciting. It is exciting. And more difficult to condense, I would imagine. Yeah, we're gonna see. Yeah. We're gonna see how that goes. But All right. All right, Habakkuk chapter one. So Habakkuk the prophet uh, would have had, he, he, he must have lived before the Babylonian invasion of Judah because he's prophesying the Babylonian invasion of Judah, even though you know Habakkuk doesn't give us any information about whose reigns he was living through. Uh, but uh, if he's living right before the Babylonian invasion, that would make him contemporary with several prophets of God. So we're talking Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zephaniah uh, is who he would be contemporary with if he's living right before the Babylonian invasion of Judah. So in chapter one, Habakkuk complains to God that he's calling for help, but God's not answering. Uh, Habakkuk's crying for help because the land of Judah is full of injustice. It's full of violence. Uh, and God, it just seems like God's tolerating all of this justice, injustice and violence. Then God answers Habakkuk, well, actually, no, I'm raising up the Babylonian empire to be, to act as this sweeping force of my judgment against the land. Judgment is coming. But then Habakkuk thinks about this and he complains again. I mean, he, he does it nicely. He does it worshipfully because he knows he's, he's talking to God, but he, he offers pushback here. And he's like, God, if I'm paraphrasing now, but, but God, if you truly can't tolerate evil, then why are you tolerating the treacherous? Why would you let the wicked Babylonians swallow up those who are more righteous than themselves? Sure, Judah has its problems, but we're at least more righteous than the Neo-Babylonian Empire who doesn't even acknowledge you at all. Uh, Babylon's worse than Judah. So how is that you being just, using something that's more evil to, to bring judgment? So in Habakkuk chapter two, then God lays out his plan to Habakkuk. And basically it's Habakkuk, I do have a plan. Babylon's not going to get away with their evil either. No one's going to get away with their evil. Uh, So verses 12 to 13 says this, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? So essentially the Babylonian invasion is not the end of the story. God's not somehow exalting Babylon because he's using their anger. He's using their war machine to bring justice and to teach a lesson to Judah or to to punish Judah in that way. Habakkuk chapter three is a prayer that seems to have originally been set to music. So like a psalm, essentially. Uh, I will quote for it from it for you. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Then Um, Habakkuk goes on to describe God as a mighty warrior. So he envisions 
God as he is behind all of this history that's going to go down, behind all this warfare that's going to go on. Who is actually in control? It is God. All right. And and he always brings it back to praising God mm. and remembering um, who God is. Uh, also, there's a really famous verse in Habakkuk, uh, the Lord, the, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights is pretty famous. It's a pretty beautiful verse. Again, that's in Habakkuk 3. Okay, we're going to move on to Zephaniah. So Zephaniah chapter one, Zephaniah the prophet calls himself the son of Cushai and he's in the royal line of David. So one of his great grandfathers was King Hezekiah. So this puts him in a really unique spot to be able to speak to the people of Judah and Jerusalem as a part of the royal family himself. Right. Um, potentially being the son of Cushai, he might be the son of a Cushite. Uh, so uh, someone from around the area of Ethiopia, which would track because we know uh, from the prophet Isaiah that King Hezekiah made alliances with Egypt and with Cush. And those alliances were likely sealed with marriages into the royal family. So it's potentially that this is part of uh, Zephaniah's, um, what do you call that? Ancestry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> ancestry being from around, uh, part of his ancestry from being from around uh, modern day Ethiopia. Right. Okay. So Zephaniah sees a vision of God's judgment on the whole earth. Now, interestingly, verse three says, I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. So this seems to be possibly intended as a kind of decreation, right? Uh, man and beast, birds, fish, and then finally the idols. So God, essentially though, God's judgment is coming on all of mankind because of sin. So Zeph- Zephaniah chapter two, this is a call for the nation of Judah to seek God, to repent, to begin following God's commands with humility And Zephaniah goes, you know, maybe, maybe he's going to shelter you from his wrath if you do these things. He talks about how the land of Philistia will become pasture land for the flocks of the remnant of Judah. So this this great territory is going to be brought to nothing and the remnant of Judah will just allow their animals to graze there. Uh, There's prophecies against Moab and Ammon. So because these nations mocked the God of the Bible and his people, their land is going to be destroyed just like Sodom and Gomorrah's were. So like almost no trace at all left of them. It's just gonna become a wasteland. It also talks about judgment coming on Cush and how Assyria will be destroyed and Nineveh will be left as a ruin in the desert, a haunt for wild animals. And the last chapter of Zephaniah, which is Zephaniah 3. So this is God talking about uh, his past, his experiences with Jerusalem and how God has remained uh, throughout Jerusalem's rebellion, how he's dealt with that. Uh, Basically, God will judge Jerusalem and uh, when he judges the rest of the nations. And through this judgment, God will cleanse Israel from the arrogant and he's going to purify the lips of the remnant 
So the people that are left, he's going to purify the lips of the remnant so that they're able to call on God again. They had gotten themselves to such a point wrapped up in sin that they couldn't even call on God. So God's going to purify their lips so that they can call on him and then he's going to bring them back to Jerusalem. Their guilt, their punishment will be taken away from them by God and God will be with them as a mighty warrior who saves them and he's going to rejoice over them with singing. Mm. Just some very interesting language. Mm-hmm. All right, Haggai. We're going to look at the two chapters of Haggai here. So Haggai the prophet, again, these prophets are not in chronological order, obviously. So Haggai <laughs> is going to jump us forward into the future after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by the Babylonian empire. But even beyond that, beyond the Babylonian exile is now over because the Persian Empire has taken over and the kings have allowed a remnant of Israel to come back to Jerusalem. So this is dated, Haggai is dated to the second year of King Darius. So this would be around 520 BC. So some of the exiles are already back in Jerusalem. All right, Haggai chapter one, God gives a prophecy to Haggai for the current governor of Judah, who is named as Zerubbabel, and also a message to the high priest of Jerusalem, who is named as Joshua. So God's message to them is that the people aren't having success in Israel because they have not rebuilt the temple. They've put it on pause. So God tells them, I am with you, but you need to rebuild the temple now. So in Haggai chapter one, the people begin to obey that. And then in Haggai chapter two, this is this is an encouragement to the leaders and to the people, especially to the people who were old enough to remember what the temple once looked like. Uh, and it's this encouragement that God's presence and God's glory is still going to be with them, even though it may not look as glorious as it once did. It's not about what it looks like. It's about God's presence and God's glory, not man's mm-hmm. exaltation of that. So God tells them to take note that this day that they began laying the foundation of the temple because God will noticeably bless them now for their faithfulness of action in obeying him, that their harvests now are going to start um, coming to fulfillment. Mm -hmm. They're going to be able to eat well. So then there's this message to Zerubbabel, again, this governor of Judah, that God has chosen him specifically for this time. And even though nations will fail, God's going to establish his leadership. So Zerubbabel has become like God's signet ring, so carrying God's authority. Now, why this is really interesting is because God had used the exact same language, but in reverse of King Jehoiachin back in Jeremiah chapter 22, where he said, you know, Jehoiachin, even if King Jehoiachin, even if you were a signet signet ring on my hand, I would still pull you off and cast you away from me. So um, that was a decommissioning when Jehoiachin went off to exile in Babylon. That was a decommissioning of the Davidic line for a time. And now with Zerubbabel, uh, it's this recommissioning of the messianic promise that the Messiah is going to come now from the line mm. of Zerubbabel specifically in the line of David. Mm. All right. So that's the end of Haggai. So now let's take a look at Zechariah, the last book that we're going to be looking at today. There's 14 chapters in it. So Zechariah chapter one. 
Zechariah, son of Berechiah, is a contemporary of the prophet Haggai. So what we just looked at, uh, Zechariah is interesting because he is a priest and a prophet, just like Ezekiel was, for yeah. example. Uh, now, according to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 23, uh, Zechariah was later murdered between the temple and the altar. So, yikes. Poor Zechariah. But let's 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 jump into <laughs> his prophecies. So, uh, to the returned exiles of Israel, through Zechariah, God says, return to me and I will return to you. So Zechariah sees a vision of a man mounted on a red horse with other horses. Um, and they're giving a report on the status of the nations of the world. Uh, they're at peace, which it, which is good. And then God says that the other nations had gone too far in their punishment of Israel and Judah. So Assyria... Babylon, etc. God will restore Jerusalem and Judah and the temple. So Zechariah then sees these four horns, and horns always represent power and authority. So these four horns represent the power of the nations that scattered Israel, and he see he sees craftsmen coming to bring down these horns mm. as a judgment of God. In Zechariah chapter 22, this contains a promise that Jerusalem will be so big that it will be a city without walls. It will just be expansive. And that God himself will be a, a protective wall around it, specifically a protective wall of fire around Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, then there's this really cool messianic promise uh, contained in verse 10 and 11 of Zechariah 2. It says this, Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Very cool. Zechariah chapter 3. So, this is a really amazing scene that we see of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, but he's dressed in filthy clothing and Satan is standing there accusing Joshua, the high priest, in front of the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord rebukes Satan and then he clothes Joshua in clean clothes. And then he said to Joshua in verse 4, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. So this removal of sin and this gift of, of righteousness onto Joshua. Then he tells Joshua to follow him, this angel of the Lord, follow me all of your days. And then he says this in verse 8 and 9. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. 
So it's interesting to think about the stone uh, is likely a gemstone like the ones in the high priest's garments uh, because Joshua is the high priest. And they were engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel. So there's going to be a new inscription on this gemstone, a new name. Uh, Very cool especially in light of the work of Christ. Zechariah chapter four. So in this, Zechariah sees a golden lampstand with two olive trees on each side of the lampstand, on either side of it, and they're providing oil for the lamps, uh, for the lamp. Now, these two trees are likely Haggai and Zechariah, the two prophets that are alive, contemporary with each other. given their role in um, motivating the people to rebuild the temple at this time. Though some people see the olive trees not as Haggai and Zechariah, but they see them rather as Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. Okay? We are told that Zerubbabel will finish the temple in Zechariah 4 as well. Okay, Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah sees a flying scroll, and this scroll contains a curse against thieves and liars. Uh, This curse is to banish them. It's going to go throughout the land, and it's going to remain in their houses to destroy them. Then Zechariah sees a basket with a woman inside of it, and she represents the collective sin of the people of the land. Um, The angel puts a lid on the basket, and then two angels who are described as women with wings like a stork, they fly and they carry the basket off to bring it to Babylon, typifying the enemy of God. Zechariah chapter seven. I know I'm not explaining these visions. I'm just recapping them. I'm (laughs) recapping them. Zechariah six. So Zechariah sees four chariots coming out from between two mountains of bronze. The horse teams of these chariots are red, black, white, and dappled horses. They're said to be the spirits of heaven going out into the world and they subdue the land to the north, uh, which would be Babylon. Uh, when the Bible talks about the land to the north in the prophets, it's normally talking about Babylon. Babylon can be symbolic for the enemy of God and it can also be literal. Then a crown is made and it's set on the head of Joshua the high priest. And then It's kept in the temple as a memorial that one day the branch, the Messiah, will come and he will be priest and king. So there's a crown that's symbolically set on um, the high priest's head, but then it's taken off and it's awaiting the Messiah in the temple. Should I just read it? Is this uh, six? Is that right? Six? Yeah, verse 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord, which is interesting. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall uh, be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be uh, between them both. Mm-hmm. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helem and the names continue. Yeah. All right. Very, very cool. Zechariah is so symbolic. It has full of messianic imagery and it's used in the New Testament as well in this way. And it's alluded to many, many times in the New Testament in reference to Christ, to Jesus Christ. Okay. Zechariah chapter 
seven. So people from the city of Bethel send a delegation. So Bethel's a really important city in Israel's history. It became a place of apostasy, then it was destroyed. And so now we're seeing this re-inhabited city of Bethel send a delegation to inquire of the Lord to see if they should mourn and fast on the fifth month like they had done every day, every, every time since the exile. And God tells them that they have fasted for themselves. The exile was punishment for the lost morality of the people. So rather than fasting, live with God's morality. It's time, it's time to stop mourning. It's time to start living right. with God's truth. Zechariah chapter 8. There's more encouragement in this chapter that even though it doesn't look like it at this moment in time when Zechariah is prophesying, uh, one day the streets of Jerusalem would be filled with generations of people uh, and that the people at this moment in time, they just needed to be strong and they just needed to finish the temple. While they're finishing the temple, uh, there's emphasis on morality again given here in Zechariah chapter 8. Speak truthfully to one another. Have justice in your court system. Do not plot evil. Do not lie. Uh, And there's this encouragement that God's blessing is on the land. It's here. We're going to have food. We're going to have crops. Let's just continue to focus on morality and building the temple. Zechariah chapter 9 this is all about how God will bring judgment on Israel's enemies. And um, those enemies that remain through the judgment will actually become God's people. So there's providence in this, in the judgment of the enemies of God. Uh, we're also told that Zion, so Jerusalem's king, the temple's king, is like it's, it's talking about the Messiah. It's talking about the coming king, okay? And of the king specifically entering Jerusalem lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, which of course is, uh, you know, it, it's quoted in the Gospels in regards to Jesus's triumphal entry into yes. Jerusalem. Uh, Zechariah chapter 10, this is this whole chapter is about how God will care for and how he will restore Judah. Zechariah chapter 11. This one is interesting. So this is about two shepherds. So first, Zechariah acts out what's happened that has led that that led to the Babylonian exile. So basically, the rejection of God as the shepherd of the people led to the Babylonian exile. So Zechariah takes the shepherd's staff in his hand that he names favor. Uh, and he breaks it to show that the covenant between God and the people of favor had been broken. Uh, So he gets the people to pay him 30 pieces of silver for his work in shepherding. Now, this is the price of a slave, which would have been very insulting. Not not the price of a good shepherd, the price of a slave. Mm -hmm. So Zechariah then throws the money into the place of the potter at the temple. He breaks the staff called Union, showing that the division between Israel and Judah, northern Israel and southern Judah. Mm. Then Zechariah becomes the second shepherd, the foolish shepherd who doesn't take care of the sheep, but actually eats the best 
cheap. The ones that look tasty, the ones that look good. He eats them himself. And this is a warning to the people that they get the shepherd that they deserve. They get the leader that they deserve. And it's a warning. It acts as a warning for the worthless shepherds because they're not going to last. Mm. Really interesting contrasts going on in Zechariah chapter 11. Okay, a few chapters left for this week. Zechariah 12. So, in the future, when nations gather against Jerusalem to destroy her, they will not be able to. Instead, those nations that try to destroy her will themselves be destroyed. So, Jerusalem is envisioned in Zechariah 12 as an intoxicating cup, a cup of wine, but not in a good way, not in a blessing sort of a way, in a cursing sort of a way. It's envisioned also as a fire pot that sets on fire. So something that you would carry fire around to set other things on fire, that. It's also envisioned as a rock that will injure all who try to move it. You just can't move it. It might look like you can, but you can't. You're just going to hurt yourself trying to move it. So there's this battle described in Zechariah chapter 12. Uh, And after this battle, something really interesting happens. Jerusalem mourns the one that they pierced. Verse 10 says, the, the last half of verse 10 says this, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son which most Christians attach to Christ. Yes, well, yeah. I'm pretty sure all Christians <laughs> attach yeah, to Christ. It'd be hard not to. It'd be hard not to. Yeah. Okay, Zechariah chapter 13. So the mourning and the grief over the one that they've pierced back in chapter 12, then it, it changes into uh, a fountain that because this this fountain opens up uh, to the house of David and to and to Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Idols will be banished. Let's talk about prophecy will be done because you won't need a prophecy anymore. Uh, and then there's this prophecy from verses seven to nine about God striking the shepherd who is close to him so that the sheep will be scattered uh, and that judgment and refinement will follow the striking of the shepherd. Now, interestingly, Jesus quotes those very verses from Zechariah 13 about God striking the shepherd so that the sheep will be scattered regarding his trial and crucifixion in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. Mm -hmm. So Jesus connects himself to the good shepherd figure of Zechariah. Right. Zechariah chapter 14, the last chapter we're looking at today. So a different perspective now is given in Zechariah 14 of of this final battle when God will save Jerusalem. So we learn that Jerusalem actually won't escape without injury. The city will initially uh, be captured and half of the population will be exiled. Then God will rise up and fight for Israel. And there'll, there'll be a great earthquake and a valley will open up. Uh, as a result of Christ, uh, of of God fighting for Israel. So a fresh life-giving river will flow from Jerusalem and the rest of the nations will be struck by a deadly plague, but Jerusalem will be secure. And all survivors of this final battle will go to worship God. Now, admittedly, 
I very briefly summarized so many of these chapters. There are so many details that I skipped over. So if you're sitting there having never read Zechariah going, what just happened? I would encourage you to go back and read the full form of Zechariah. I just gave you some of the highlights here, but it is really, really interesting, especially if you have read the New Testament before, especially if you've read the Gospels, but you've never read Zechariah, I would encourage you to go back and read it because it is fascinating, especially how many times the New Testament alludes back to and references it. So yeah, anything else you want to say before we close up this week? No, there's some interesting things, but there's actually so many interesting things in Zechariah (laughs) that... It's a feast. Too it's many, too a, yeah. many things. <laughs> I will say that verse twelve is quite astonishing. I'll just read of it. Of what fourteen? Of Zechariah fourteen, verse twelve. Mm-hmm. And this shall be the plague that which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will not will rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Like they're just standing there, all of a sudden they just begin to rot, basically. It's not a good situation. And it's about the war that's being raged against Jerusalem. Yeah. And we know that from all these other prophets that are speaking, that there's going to be this final battle that comes against Jerusalem. You know, Revelation talks about this Gog-Magog war against it, or, right. what, or whatever it might be. And um, this sounds to me like God's judgment just f- f- comes through so quickly that they're consumed while they're standing there, essentially, right? That's what it sounds like. Um, but realistically, it's like it's just a striking verse. Um <laughs> it is. Well, yeah. yeah. And like no yeah. one can stand against the judgment of God. That's right. And it's Yikes. coming at the end of time kind of thing. So there's a lot There's a lot you can relate that to because of God's judgment uh, right before, right during the, the final battle. Um, but it's too much to get into today. And uh, we'll have to get we'll into it. We'll save it for another day. We'll have to get into Maybe when we get to Matthew. Matthew 24 or something. <laughs> All right. All right. So much good stuff in Zechariah. Okay, guys, if you have any comments or questions below, uh, put them put them you know, in the comments down below. Please put them there because Matlock and I, we enjoy reading them. We enjoy responding to them. I hope you have a really great week uh, this week as we move forward. We're moving into the New Testament. So that's exciting. Uh, I hope you're excited to move in into Matthew as well. Let me know if you have a favorite gospel. Some people do. Some people have a favorite gospel. Maybe you don't know if you do yet. But if you do, let us know. Talk to you later. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.